Fame is one of our global partners that our church supports. Uh, you support them when you give uh, to Lebanon Christian Church to our offerings. Uh, 20% of every dollar uh, that you give gets used outside of, of these walls. And Fame is one of those partners. So you're a part of this project. Uh, we just want to share with you this update of how God is using uh, your resources uh, around the world. If you'd like to, God has blessed you in a way that you can help with that project even more, please see me um, and we can get you in touch with fame and you can make some other private donations because I think they still need $44,000 to finish off the project, but you're already a part of it. And I think that's worth, uh, worth celebrating and that we are a part of making a difference all around the world um, to help people experience the fullness of who Jesus is. To make a difference around the world though, we have to see beyond ourselves. Have you noticed how difficult it is to see beyond me? Think, think about how much of our lives are tied up in thoughts of what matters to, to us. Some of it's very natural. It's what leads to survival. It's instinctual. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to go? Uh, where am I going to live? But even think beyond that, how much of your thoughts in a given day how much of your activity are caught up with your desires and your wants? Just do an assessment. You, you talk about the morning routine. Um, when am I going to get up? Maybe when do I want to get up and when do I need to get up? And they're probably different. One you have a first alarm for and the second one is your absolute necessity, right? You have to respond to that one. Am I going to eat? Which route am I going to take to work? What am I going to do when I get to work? How am I going to handle this conversation at work? If you're a student, am I going to do my homework? Am I going to use my study hall to, to get ahead, or am I going to use it to hang out and to talk with friends and, and, and text somebody? Like, like, what am I going to do? So much of our life revolves around, what, like, what do I want? You probably have a plan for today. What, what do you want to do today? What am I going to do? What am I going to enjoy? What do I desire? And I'm not at all insinuating that having those thoughts about you and your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions and your wants is... is is at its core negative. It's just a reality. So much of our life is spent thinking about us. How much of that internal monologue inside of you is thinking about you and what you want and what you desire? But when you add to that an enemy of God, what some of you might not recognize as an enemy, you just call it, there's this force that just keeps drawing me back to myself. Uh, but there's an enemy against God who's drawing us back to ourselves. Uh, there are some other things in culture that make this even harder. Think about our marketing. Millions and millions of dollars are spent by marketing firms and corporations to think about your core desires and to craft campaigns to help you see that you cannot be complete, you cannot be fulfilled, you cannot be happy without that product, without that experience. More thoughts about us. It's hard to see beyond me in our world. Think about technology. I know this dates me a little bit, uh, or maybe a lot of it. Um, I'm 45. Uh, when I grew up, for the bulk of my childhood, I think actually all of my childhood, up until maybe my high school years, we had one television in the entire house. So the conversation at our dinner table was, what are we going to watch tonight? And then what ensued were these negotiations, right? Uh, my sister wanted to watch cartoons. My dad wanted to watch the news. My mom wanted to watch whatever the equivalent of the Hallmark Channel was in the 90s, right? Um, I wanted to watch sports. And so there's this give and take as we work together about what we would watch. 
How many of those debates take place in our homes now, right? You may have a television in nearly every room. Chances are that the people you live with have tablets and computers and devices. And it's not even uncommon. I've heard stories of the family gathering in a living room and the television's on, but there's only one person watching the television because everybody else is watching their phones and their tablets, right? Technology pushes us to think more and more about ourselves. Think about social media. There's so many good things that can come from it as you share, you know, um, uh, news with people around the world and you keep up with friendships from the past. But, but isn't there this insidious part of it that sometimes wants to make us the highlight reel? To make sure our story gets out there, that somebody sees what we ate and what we did and how we look. It is hard. All I'm saying is it is hard to see beyond me. We're launching a series today called Missio Dei. Uh, you may not know this, but the phrase Missio Dei is a Latin phrase that means the mission of God. And I use the phrase Missio Dei because it has been a part of church history uh, for a number of years. I think the earliest we can find someone use the phrase Missio Dei was Augustine. It refers to the mission that God has for his people. We can think about it in a couple ways. The mission that God has for his people, that is the church, his redeemed community. And we talk about the church, we're talking about the church with a big C, I guess if I'm spelling backwards for you, it's a big C that is not a building, that is not a place, that is not an institution. They're all the people that have responded to the incredible good news of who God is. That's the big C church. God has a mission for his church. Lebanon Christian Church is a part of the big C church. Again, not the building, but the people. And God has a mission for us. But here's the incredible news. It's not just a mission for his church. Even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, God intended for you to be a part of this mission. It's a mission for all of humanity. But so often what stands in our way of joining God and experiencing the fullness of his mission is that we can't see beyond me. We can't see beyond me to see the breadth and the depth and the grandeur of God's plan and God's purposes. And so what I want to do today is we're calling this prelude to the mission. Next week, we're going to look more at the mission itself. Uh, the following week, the methods of that mission, the masterpiece of the mission, and the final week of the series. But today's the prelude of the, to the mission. What's a prelude? A prelude is an introduction. It prepares the way for what's to come. This week, I hope, prepares you to hear about God's incredible mission, to find your place in that mission, to join him in his mission. It's not as though God created um, humans and gave them a mission. No, God had a mission. He created humans to join him in that mission. And if we can see beyond ourselves, if we can see beyond me, if we can fight this kind of vortex of self-centeredness that surrounds us, we can find ourselves experiencing more and more of the fullness of life that God created every single one of us for. So let's see beyond me. The number one obstacle that stands in the way of us fulfilling the mission of God is the person that looks back at us in the mirror every single day. It's ourselves. So how do we see beyond me? To help us see beyond me, I wanna take you to a lesser known parable in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, phones, tablets, hard copies, find Luke chapter 14. The primary verses we're going to read are verses 16 to 24, but it's gonna be a little bit before we get there, so just kind of hold on to it. All of Luke 14 invites us to be challenged, to have our assumptions challenged, uh, 
All of Luke 14 challenges us to see beyond me, to see beyond ourselves. From the very beginning, Jesus, here's the context. Uh, Jesus is at the, the home of a prominent Pharisee. It's the Sabbath day. If you don't know who the Pharisees are, um, the Pharisees were the religious, what we might call the religious elite. They were the guardians of the integrity of the Jewish faith. Uh, they were the ones who uh, were charged with protecting and making sure that the instructions of God through Moses, through the prophets were obeyed and they were followed. They were the religious authority. They kind of prided themselves on making sure that people followed Jesus, or followed Jesus, no, not followed Jesus, followed God uh, faithfully. That's who the Pharisees are. So these prominent Pharisees invite Jesus to dinner. It's also the Sabbath day. Uh, it's the day of rest. It's the day when there wasn't supposed to be any work. And all throughout this dinner party, we find Jesus challenging the Pharisees to see beyond themselves. It begins with the healing of a man from a condition that we would call edema. Uh, when you read in Luke 14, it says there was a man at this dinner who um, had experienced abnormal swelling in his body. Uh, he had edema, swelling in his extremities, dangerous, it's hard on your heart. And, and Jesus, before he heals him, asks the Pharisees, is it lawful, is it in keeping with the law of Moses to heal somebody on the Sabbath? What's really interesting about that question is that we can fast forward earlier in Jesus' life and the Pharisees asked him the same question. They said, Jesus, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And Jesus confronts their assumptions. Of course, they found it lawful to do some healing. They would rescue a son. They would rescue a donkey. They would rescue an animal if it was uh, in danger of drowning or being hurt. And so Jesus goes on to heal in the first instance. Here, Jesus challenges with the same question. They don't answer because they know the answer. And he goes on and he heals the man of his condition. In that episode, Jesus is already challenging the Pharisees to see beyond themselves. Here are these prominent dinner guests at a party, a man who is suffering, and Jesus is saying, can you see him? Can you look beyond yourself? Following the healing, guess what happens? Jesus observes their behavior. He sees that as they come into this dinner party, they have assumed uh, all the best places. So when someone comes in, they see the seats around the table, the, the, the most um, prized seats were next to the dinner host themselves, and they've come in and they've taken the positions of highest honor. And so he's monitored this, he's watched this, and he's been like, why does everybody want the seats that are, are so valuable? Why has nobody taken the least valuable seats? And so he's looking and he's seeing their hearts that they want to position themselves to put themselves in the spotlight, to put themselves in the seat of honor. And so he tells them this really neat anecdotal story. He says, when, 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 you, when you have a feast and you're invited to a feast, don't assume the seat of highest honor because something might happen. If, if you walk into a dinner party and there aren't very many people there yet and you take the seat of, of greatest honor closest to the host, someone else might come to the dinner a little while later who's more important than you and the host is gonna have to say, <clears throat> I need you to move down. And it's likely that the seat that's left is gonna be a seat of lower honor. So you're gonna to have to walk through all this shame. He said, instead, when you go to a dinner, assume the lowest seat and then allow the host to come to you and say, excuse me, you can move up, sir. And there's way more honor in that. He's, he's challenging again the Pharisees to see, see beyond yourself. This is not about you. This is not about your status. This is not about how great you are. Look beyond yourself. And then he follows that by saying, hey, by the way, host, when you host your next dinner, how about invite people that can't repay you? There was this reciprocal culture in the culture of Jesus' day 
where if you had wealth and means, you would host a dinner at your home with a full anticipation that those people would invite you over for dinner later. And it would just go back and forth. And so the people that had great friends and they had wealth, they would get to go back and feast at one another's houses. And, and Jesus says, how about we change that up? How about you invite the people who can't repay you? And he names them. He says, why don't you invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame? Again, this is a challenge to these religious elite. Why is that? Well, we read other places in the Gospels where the Pharisees associated disease and illness and poverty with sin. So the Pharisees had determined that most people that were suffering in poverty, people that were suffering by being crippled or blind, uh, they're there because of the wrongdoing in their life. And Jesus is saying, but, but you should be inviting them to dinner even if they can't repay you. Again, he's challenging them, see beyond me. See beyond yourself. And then Jesus gives this little nugget at the end of Luke chapter 14. Sorry, Luke chapter 14, verse 14. I'll read verse 13. I'll back up a little bit. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And, verse 14, you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That phrase is critical to this whole passage. If you will change your practices, Pharisees, and invite the people who can't repay you, you can be assured that you will be honored at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be blessed by inviting those who wouldn't otherwise be able to come. And that phrase, the resurrection of the righteous, provokes a thought in the mind of one of the dinner guests. Look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, you likely see that it takes you to the bottom or to the center, and it shares with you some other passages. You can go back to Isaiah chapter 25, and we can read about this feast that's coming with the Lord. There was this expectation among the Jewish people that when God sent the Messiah and he rescued his people and he made all things new, that there would be this incredible feast. They, they thought of eternity. They thought of heaven, like this grand banquet, this grand feast. That's when all things would be great. Bellies would be full. Lives would be whole. There would be no more evil, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That was the hope that they had when it came to the resurrection of the righteous, to this feast in the kingdom of God. In fact, it was so prevalent in Jesus' day that in Luke chapter 13, he's already talked about the feast of the kingdom of God. So as this man sits at this dinner party, he hears Jesus teaching. He says, blessed, you'll be blessed in the resurrection of the righteous. He goes, yes, blessed. How incredible it is for those who get to feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus then tells a parable to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about who's gonna be at that feast and who God wants at that feast in the kingdom of God. And here's the parable, verses 16 to 24. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. When the owner of the, then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Same people that Jesus has just talked about previously. 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. When Jesus teaches parables, he uses the familiar uh, to reveal a deeper spiritual truth. And often as he shares the familiar, people are drawn into the story and there's some sort of reversal or there's some sort of surprise and in there often is found the point of the parable. So what's the familiar here? It's the feast, it's the banquets. Like this culture knew them. Even those that were poor and, and could not participate in the banquet, they knew what it was like to see a gathering in someone's home or in a place where there was a banquet, banquet occurring. Certainly these Pharisees sitting around this dinner hearing this parable knew the familiarity of banquets and feasts. So he's using the familiar. What's the deeper spiritual truth? Well, keep in mind, this parable follows the man's statement, blessed is the one who feasts in the kingdom of God. He's picturing this time when God makes all things new. Again, there's this hope and there's this expectation among the Jewish people, the same hope and expectation that we have, that one day this sinful, evil, sorrowful, suffering, and oppressive world will cease and all things will be made new. So they're thinking of the end of this present world when God makes all things new. And Jesus says um, that that's the banquet he's talking about. So the host here is, is God. And he shows us the breadth of God's invitation. It's not just for the Pharisees. It's for as many people as respond to God as, as will. God wants his everyone to come to follow him and to experience the fullness of his life. Look at the emphasis on the number of guests. Verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Even after those guests make excuses and refuse, what does he then tell the servant in verse 23? Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Again, in the context of the parable, Jesus is saying something to these religious leaders. He's saying something to us. Do we understand the breadth, the greatness, the grandeur of God's invitation and God's plan? God wants everyone to come to follow him. Does that mean everyone will respond and trust in Jesus and follow him? No, but he wants everyone to have the opportunity and he wants as many people as possible to come and to follow him. He wants his house full. He wants the feast in the kingdom of God to be full. He wants it to be well attended. He wants people to experience the fullness of his life. Do we understand the breadth of that mission? Do we understand the greatness of his plan? Do we see beyond ourselves? I know, I know we're excited to think about our own eternity one day. We're excited to think about our own ticket to heaven one day. We're excited to think about our own journey with Jesus. But are we willing to look beyond ourselves and say, this is what God wants for everyone? Will we see beyond me? I want to take you to a couple of other passages that really emphasize this for us, for the church. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Paul encourages Timothy, and it's a passage that I know, at least in my experience growing up in church, I did not hear a lot. I heard a lot about the rest of 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, uh, but let's lean into the first six verses. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Verse four, who wants what? All people. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, and this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. God's heart is clear. He wants all people to come to know him. As Jesus impresses us upon the Pharisees, look at the scope of this invitation. He wants his house full. He wants all people. Do we see that even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that God wants so many more to experience the goodness and the fullness and the power of his life? Another verse we can look at is 2 Peter chapter 3. Probably a little more familiar. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reminds us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants his house full. If we're going to engage in the mission of God, if we're going to trust and follow and employ the methods of God's mission, if we're going to be able to witness the masterpiece and the beauty of the mission, it starts by us being willing to see that we have to look beyond ourselves. We have to see beyond me. What's really interesting in Jesus' parable, and here's kind of where the surprise element is and the teaching moment for Jesus, is that those who were expected to be there actually refused to come. He issues an invitation. He invites guests. Uh, the way dinner practices worked in Jesus' day, uh, you needed to know how many people to prepare for. So an initial invitation went out. Will you come to my party? And the responses were yes. So the host prepares a meal, sends out the next invitation. Hey, the food's ready. Come on, come eat. And so it would have been insulting to these Pharisees to think about having replied to a dinner invitation and saying yes and then saying, no, I'm not gonna show up. To top that all off, their excuses are, are, are pretty familiar excuses even to us. In verse 18, the first one says, hey, I, I bought a field. I actually need to go look at it. The second one says in, in verse 19, um, I, I bought some, some oxen, some teams of oxen, I think five of them. I need to go work them a little bit, try them out. Verse 20, I just got married. I need to go home to my wife. And why I say these are familiar to us is Jesus is not giving us the excuses of every single person, but these are representative of the things that stand in the way of people seeing beyond themselves and experiencing the fullness of God's mission. Wealth. The field represents wealth. This man who owns land had bought another piece of property, and so his wealth and his wants and the things that he could possess kept him from going to the dinner. Work. For how many people does work stand in the way? He got five teams of oxen. Let me go try them out. Let me, let me find my purpose and my meaning and my mission in my work rather than in what God has for me. How many people struggle to find their, their meaning? How many people does their work keep them from making God number one in their lives? How many people refuse to see beyond themselves in those ways? What's the final one? I gotta go home to my wife. Now, this may sound awful, but what, what Jesus is highlighting is that the man was putting his relationship with his new wife above his relationship with who God would be as the host? Do we order our relationships where God is the most important relationship? 
Do you see Jesus challenging the assumptions of these Pharisees? He's calling them to look beyond themselves, to see. And then the greatest challenge comes from who ends up actually responding to the invitation. When they refuse, who comes? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The very same people the Pharisees would have had trouble inviting to their dinner. And then when there's still more room, what does the invitation expand to from there? Go out to the country road, the country lanes and the roads. That's a picture for those at this dinner and to the area that is beyond them, the area that is unfamiliar. And that would be the culture of Gentiles, not those who were of the Jewish faith and Jewish heritage. It's expanding the scope of God's mission. He's saying, listen, you gotta look beyond yourself. God does have a great feast in the kingdom of God. God does have great purposes and plans for, for all people. But if you're going to experience it yourself and help other people experience, you have to see beyond me. How will you and I see beyond ourselves? We need to assume the posture of the poor rather than the posture of the Pharisee. The posture of the Pharisee was one of independence and pride. It was about them, about their position, about what they wanted when we take the whole context of Luke 14. But the position of the poor was one of dependence. The poor didn't want to refuse a dinner invitation because it was their opportunity to eat. I'm not suggesting you take a vow of poverty. I'm just suggesting would we humble ourselves and say that we are dependent upon God. We want to do life his way and we want to follow him. If we're going to join God on his mission, we have to see beyond ourselves. Will you see beyond yourself? Which posture will you assume in this world? Will it all be about you? Will you be independent? I don't need God. I'll make excuses. Or will it be, God, I need you. And God, I want you. And God, I want to reach all these people around me that matter to your heart just as much as I matter to your heart. Will we choose to be people who see beyond me? Will we respond to the invitation that God has for us as his children to respond and look beyond ourselves? If we're gonna engage in the mission of God in the coming weeks, if we're gonna accept it and find our place in his story, if we're gonna adopt his methods, if we're gonna see the beauty of his masterpiece, it's gonna come because we see beyond ourselves. And in a culture that has this vortex of thinking about self and filtering things through me and what I want, what I wanna experience, and what I feel, it's a challenge that lays before every one of us to look beyond ourselves, allow God to see the breadth and the scope of his plan to allow him to confront our own assumptions and to look beyond ourselves and join him in his mission. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus and his words, words that fathers sometimes are, are really hard. God, you know how you've wired us and you know that there are times that we have to think about ourselves. Um, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to fight for ourselves. But God, you also know that there are so many times when we can get caught up in our own self-centered lives. And we can be inflated with pride and we can think that we're better than others. And God, I just pray that as we move into this series that you would help us to see beyond ourselves. That you would confront our assumptions, that you would challenge us, that we would see the beauty and the power and the breadth of your mission and want to join in it with you. That we would find our purpose in your story. God, lead us and guide us and help us see beyond ourselves. God, even today, help us see beyond ourselves. Help us to look outside of um, maybe even our own hurts and uh, our own happenings in our life to, to notice the people around us and have a heart for them, have a heart for our neighbor, 
to have a heart for the person that may be in a restaurant with us later today. I have a heart for the people driving down the street. God, help us to see beyond me. It's in your name we trust and pray and ask these things. Amen.